one summer while I was attending Bible college, I preached on Sundays in a small rural church in East Central Missouri while I was living with my parents and working during the week. But my father, who was a minister, also wanted me to spend some time uh, with he and his elders, just being mentored in uh, pastoral ministry, leadership, that sort of thing. And I think he was hoping that I might listen to his elders better than I listened to him. But one of my first assignments was to uh, go with a couple of the elders as they called uh, on the husband of one of the elderly members of, of his congregation. She had been a member there for many years, but he had been involved in a cult and wanted nothing to do with the church. The particular cult he'd been involved in did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He was just a man, nothing more. And on one of the previous occasions where they had gone to visit him, he had gotten quite belligerent and had told them to never come back again. Um, but the problem now was that he was dying. Uh, after many years of, of smoking, you know, like two, three packs a day, he, he had cancer. He was suffering from severe emphysema, and his doctors had recently given him only a few weeks to live. And so his wife had begged the elders to please come by and try to talk to him again. And so here I was riding along on this special trip. Now, this man comes out, and, and you need to picture this in your mind, because he's wearing a mask connected to an oxygen tank, um, while at the same time he is smoking a cigarette, you know, breathe in, uh, you know, take a, take a drag, back and forth, and I was just sure that we were going to go up in a ball of flames. The other thing was that the oxygen mask made him sound like Darth Vader. So it made him all that much more intimidating. And the conversation began and, and the elders tried to be as, you know, kind and gentle as possible. Um, but he immediately went on the attack, <clears throat> targeting several uh, Christian beliefs that he thought was absolutely ridiculous. And the debate quickly centered on the birth of Jesus. Now, his main contention was that Jesus could not both be God and man at the same time, right? And after some intense back and forth, um, there was this awkward moment of silence. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do, but I didn't like this just weight of silence hanging over us. And so, I decided to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And our core verse this week is verse 14. And so here is what I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man 
sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And then here's our core verse, John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now this is one of the most significant passages in all of scripture. Its spiritual depth and literary elegance stand unrivaled. Its substance and style are filled with majestic beauty. And John writes this in a beautiful poetic form that sadly does not shine through in the English. In fact, many scholars believe that the early church sang this as a hymn. These were the lyrics of a worship song. William Barclay uh, writes about this passage. He says, The first chapter of the fourth gospel is one of the greatest adventures of religious thought ever achieved. The early church father Chrysostom is reported to have said, It is beyond the power of man to speak as John does in his prologue. Roger Fredrickson says, this prologue is like standing in the foothills of an awesome mountain range and catching a breathtaking glimpse of massive snow-capped peaks reaching up through the haze. Now, John starts off boldly declaring that Jesus is the Word, the Logos of God. Separated as we are by vast distances of, of time and culture from John, we don't realize just how bold of a claim this really is when John says that Jesus is the Word, the Logos of God. And when it comes to, to translating this Greek word Logos, translators run into this monumental challenge because there is no word in the English language sufficient to express the weight and fullness of logos, right? You could write a book about what logos meant to, to those who read it, like John's readers 2,000 years ago. Now, a simple dictionary definition is that logos is intelligent or reasoned speech. It is the orderly linking and knitting together of the thoughts and ideas of the mind. So its meaning is more than just word, right? There are other words in the Greek language that John could have used if, if all he meant to say was word, right? There's lalia, 
which is an unintelligent sound noise or, or utterance, right? This is used for unrecognizable speech, you know, blah, 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 blah. The other day, uh, Allison came into the room and I started talking to her. And of course, as, of, as happens to all of us sometimes, you know, she, she looks at me, she pulls her earbud out and she says, what? And so I smile and I just said, oh, I was just saying blah, 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 blah. And she puts the earbud back in and says, that's what I thought. Another word John could have used is lalio, which means to speak without necessarily saying anything intelligent. Now that might apply to me, but it certainly doesn't apply to Jesus. The third word John could have used was rhema, which refers to the, the spoken or written word. This was ordinary human language, but logos means so much more. And that is the word that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses to use right here to describe Jesus. Now, to the Old Testament Jew, or to the Jews alive at the time of Jesus, the logos of God, or the word of God, means God in action, right? God's word was seen as powerful and effective. And the Hebrew word uh, that would be translated into Greek as logos or, or into English as word refers to an action or an event rather than a concept or an idea. Right? To say something was God's word or God's logos was to say that it was as good as done. The word of God was equivalent to the work of God. The Jews understood Lagos to be God's work from creation to revelation to deliverance to judgment. Now, the origin and the course of the entire creation in Jewish eyes was directed and controlled by God's powerful Lagos, his word. Psalm uh, 33 verse 6 uh, says this, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Isaiah 55.10 communicates a similar idea. And uh, these are verses that you've heard before. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. All right? You hear it there, right? God's word is God's work done. Now, of course, all of these Old Testament passages were, were originally written in, in Hebrew, um, but the Jews of Jesus' day, remember they were under the Roman Empire, and, and before that it was the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great that had swept through the region, and, and one of the things that Alexander the Great's Greek Empire did was it spread the Greek language far and wide. So everyone spoke Greek. That was their primary language. They weren't speaking Hebrew 
much anymore. And so the Old Testament Bible in Hebrew in Jesus' day had been translated into Greek. And this Greek version of the Old Testament was known as the Septuagint. Well, all these verses in the Old Testament that talk about the Word of God, guess what Greek word they used? Lagos, right? God's Word in action. The New Testament writers use the word the same way. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God or the logos of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The logos of God was so closely associated with God that Jewish scholars began using the term for God, right? And the reason this happened, as invading armies relocated most Jews to the foreign lands, you know, they, they had quit using their native tongue. Uh, and as I said before, they're now speaking Greek. Um, when this happened, they quit using the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. And they began using the word logos as God's name. So the Jewish idea of logos is, is that God's word represents not just God's action and God's work, but it represents God himself, right? It is the very expression of God by which we know him and experience him. His word represents his will, his thought, his action, and his presence. God's word is his point of contact with his created order so that you could say that God's word is the bridge between him and us. It's God's point of contact with humanity. So when John's uh, readers uh read this, especially the Jewish readers, uh, this is all going into what they're understanding John say. And when they hear him say that Jesus is the Logos of God, the Word of God, think of what an astounding claim that was for them to hear. Now, the Greeks also viewed the Logos as an expression of God. However, their idea of God was quite different from that of the Jews. The Greek concept of Logos began with the philosopher Heraclitus around uh, 580 BC, you know, think five centuries plus before the time of Jesus. He was a, a, a philosopher from the city of Ephesus, same city that the letter of Ephesians was written to. And it was most famous for the illustration, it is impossible to step twice into the same river. Now, he taught that the cosmos exists in a constant state of flux, all right? Change, Heraclitus said, was, was constant. And from moment to moment, everything is always changing. However, this change wasn't random, aimless chaos, right? The change had a purpose. It had a direction. And according to Heraclitus, it was the logos that ordered the universe and gave direction 
and purpose to this change. All right, the Lagos formed a pattern that orchestrated everything. So if you're a Star Wars nerd, think of the force. Undoubtedly, George Lucas was influenced by ancient philosophy in his imagination of the galaxy far, far away. Now, after Heraclitus came the Stoic philosophers. They further developed the idea the Lagos was the mind of God. It was the principal order of the universe. It was the Lagos that made the universe a cosmos rather than a chaos. So imagine John's Gentile readers reading this prologue to his book and hearing him say that Jesus is the Lagos of God. Of all the things that John could have said about Jesus, out of all the things that John could have called him, he picks this one thing that is so loaded with meaning for both Jew and Gentile alike that says so much about Jesus. Jesus is God in action. He is the fulfillment, fulfillment of God's will. He's here by the purpose and promise of God. He holds creation together. He gives direction to the entire universe. He is the mind of God that brings order out of the chaos. And John is saying that Jesus is the perfect expression and representation of God, that he is our point of contact with God. If you want to know what God looks like, then look at Jesus. He goes on, when the beginning happened, right, Jesus was there. He was there already, all right? That means that he was eternal. He wasn't just with God, though. John says he was, he was God. And he took part in creation. He was a part of the creative process. He helped make everything. And he is the light that gives birth, gave birth to the universe and life as we know it. Now, these are all bodacious claims all on their own. Right? He is claiming that Jesus is equal with God, but John is just getting started. Right, he is about to make his most audacious claim yet. Right, Jesus, who wasn't just there at creation, but he was the creator. He helped speak the cosmos into existence, has now entered into his own creation and become a part of it. All right, verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, right? The creator has now become a part of the creation. Mind blown. But it gets even weirder. Uh, Jesus didn't just enter creation as the most brilliant star in space or the most powerful hurricane to stir up the ocean waters in a most impressive display. He didn't enter our world as this massive cloud formation to write a message in the skies. Well, surely, if he had entered creation in, in that way, um, the world would have known. We couldn't have missed the message. But in verse 10, it says this. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world 
did not recognize him. How does God become a part of his own creation and we completely miss it? <laughs> he does it by entering the world as a little baby, as a tiny, insignificant human in a tiny, insignificant village in a tiny, insignificant country. He came as one of us. Right? This is what theologians call the incarnation. God became flesh. And so John says in our core verse in John 1.14, um, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Mark Moore points out in the Core 52 book that if you've grown up in the church, right, you've heard this truth so many times that you have forgotten just how truly outrageous this idea is, right? We forget how ridiculous Christianity can sound. And in fact, this is the biggest point of contention between Christianity and, and every other faith tradition. Mark Moore writes, how can the eternal God squeeze into such a small package? For many, it's unthinkable that God would reduce himself to a human being. I mean, how do you fit? Infinite wonder glory, and power into a five-pound sack of flesh and bones. Preposterous, right? And yet it is this very miracle that makes my salvation and your salvation possible. Right? How do you save people? By becoming a person and solving their most unconquerable problem. Mark Moore points out that the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus tells us three very important things about God. First of all, God is near. God is near. In most religions, God is, is, is you know, above and beyond. He, he is far off and distant, often unconcerned with our daily trials. But God, God's not busy with something else, right? He's not going to put you on hold and leave you to talk to some automated answering system, right? God is near and he's present with us. The incarnation tells us this. In verse 14, where it says that he made his dwelling among us, in the Greek it literally says he pitched his tent among us. Right? This is Jesus saying, this is my neighborhood. These are my people. This is where I belong. So when you are, are curled up on your bed in a ball of tears, in a wad of snot and tears you cry out to heaven and the logos of god the word made flesh assures us that god is near that he's right there with you
And that leads right in to, to the second thing that the incarnation tells us. Not only is God near, God is love. God is love. The only thing that explains why Jesus would do what he did, why he would take on human flesh and enter the world as one of us, is that he loves us. Only love could do such a thing. Paul writes in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God is near. God is love. And there's a third thing that the incarnation tells us about God. And that is God can suffer. You know, in most religions, the gods are beyond human experience, right? They're above all that. They're untouched by human events. However, when God becomes flesh, this changes everything. God doesn't just understand you. He doesn't just get you. He's been you. Right? He has experienced life in the flesh. He's experienced all that you have experienced. He knows your human foibles and limitations. He knows each and every emotion intimately. He knows weakness and pain. He knows loss. He knows fear. He knows tears. He knows what it is to be tired and lonely and hungry and thirsty. He's been through it all. But Jesus' suffering wasn't random, right? Jesus became one of us so that he could suffer as one of us, so that he could pay the price as one of us. His suffering brought us hope and healing and forgiveness. His suffering opened the door for us to become like him. Think of that. He became like us so we could become like him. Back to my opening story. I finished reading those verses from John chapter 1, and I closed my Bible, and we both felt unsure of, of what to say next. The awkward silence fell back over the room. The old man drew in another deep breath, Darth Vader breathing through his oxygen mask. And then finally he asked this question. If Jesus was born the Son of God, where was he before he was born? Right? Now, I thought he was asking, you know, where was Jesus, you know, for those thousands of years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And so I was going to share with him the scriptures that talked about Jesus being in heaven, you know, uh, at the right hand of, of God on the throne. I was going to talk about the passages that talked about the role that Jesus had in creation. And so I, I just let off with this statement. I said, before his birth, Jesus was with his father in heaven. And when it came time for Mary to conceive, Jesus left heaven and willingly entered her womb as a baby. Now, before I could go on with my presentation, which was genius, I'm sure, he stopped and interrupted me. He says, do you mean to tell me that the spirit of the divine son of God left the throne in heaven and entered into an unborn baby? 
You see, his question wasn't really, where was Jesus for those thousands of years? It was basically, so where was Jesus while Mary was pregnant? Right? That was his mental hang-up. He never imagined that God could be in the form of an unborn baby. And I explained, yes, that's exactly where Jesus was. He was in Mary. We went to Luke chapter 1, and we examined the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary uh, about how she would become pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this crotchety old man's eyes filled with tears. And he literally fell to his knees, and he began sobbing uncontrollably. And he started praying for forgiveness, not to God, but to Jesus. He's like, oh, Jesus, please forgive me. Please forgive me. All these years, I did not see who you really were. I didn't know. I didn't understand. But now that I see you are truly the Son of God, please forgive me. And this man came to church with his wife for the first time in decades that next Sunday. He was baptized into Christ, and he died in Christ a few weeks later after I had returned to school. Do you know the God who became flesh for you? Thank you, and God bless.